I'm Candace Long with Lessons in the Latter Days, offering biblical commentary to make sense of the times that we're living in. Today's topic is called Torah 101, the foundation of our faith. It concludes a brief series I've been working on to bring you better understanding about our Jewish roots. This topic is especially important now because of a recent confrontation that took place in Jerusalem between Christians and Jews. I was horrified by what I read. The conflict happened at the end of May, as Jews were celebrating one of the holiest times of the year, which is Shavuot, the day that celebrates God giving the Torah to the Jewish people. It is a sacred day one of the holy convocations that God set up to meet with his people. It is a day that is precious both to the Jewish people and to the Lord. But sadly, this year, 2023, it was disrupted by ill-informed and presumptuous Christians who chose to use this occasion as a platform hoping to convert as many Jews as possible. Today I want to do my best to explain to you how unnecessary and sorrowful this conflict was in God's eyes, and why the Torah is so precious to the Jewish people, and what those of us who come from a Christian background need to do to humble ourselves and learn from them. This shouting match between Christians and Orthodox Jews took place in the old city of Jerusalem on May 28th. The Apostle Paul refers to Gentiles who recognize Jesus as the Messiah as wild olive branches, as we read in Romans 11. We are grafted into the cultivated olive tree and its rich patriarchal roots spanning thousands of years by sheer grace. Paul warns us not to be arrogant and come across as entitled, but humbled by the goodness of God. Such behavior as invading their sacred time of worship has done tremendous damage to those of us who have worked for years to build trust and deep regard for the Jewish people. It was they whom God entrusted with the foundational material of our faith not us. Christians brought no glory to our Messiah on Pentecost in Jerusalem. I felt the need today to bring you an overview of the Torah, because it is supposed to be the foundation of our faith. But is it really to most Christians? I've been studying the Torah now for many years, and it has been life-changing. I feel kind of like one of the new immigrants who have become new citizens of the United States and so proud of what they have learned about our country in our Constitution. Most Americans have never read the Constitution and cannot appreciate the joy these new immigrants have over it. If we are headed to the kingdom of God and hope to become a citizen of it, we had best know the foundational documents of kingdom citizenship and that is the Torah. So I'm going to do a brief summary of each of the five books of Moses, interspersed with a little commentary. Book number one is Genesis. 
According to the sages, the Torah is not a history book, but it is the charter of man's mission in the universe. The reason for the Torah's narrative of creation is to establish that God is the sovereign of the universe. He declared to his people the power of his works in order to give them the heritage of the nations, which we find in Psalm 111. If the nations were to accuse Israel, which they do, of stealing and seizing the lands of the seven nations of Canaan, Israel can say, well, the entire universe belongs to God. He created it and he granted it to whomever he deemed fit. It was his desire to give it to them. And then it was his desire to take it from them and give it to us. Adam and Eve The forerunners of humanity had the mission of fulfilling creation by carrying out God's commandments. They failed and were driven into exile. Man's mission did not change. Only how that mission would be carried out changed. In Genesis, we find the restorative power of repentance. In fact, repentance became a prerequisite to man's existence. Adam and Eve repented. So did subsequent sinners, Cain and Lamech. This, too, is one of the main lessons of Genesis. Man may sin, but he can come back, and God allows him the opportunity to do so. Now, all of this is a prelude to the story of Israel. God was patient for ten generations between Noah and Abraham. But each of these generations failed to carry out God's mission. After that, God chose Abraham and his offspring to carry out the mission. This is why Genesis is called the Book of Creation. Creation is not primarily the story of mountains and valleys or even human and animal life. It is the story of the birth of Israel, the nation that inherited the original task of Adam and Eve. In Genesis, we trace Israel's story from the life of Abraham and Sarah until their offspring develop into a family and then a nation. The Torah relates the story of six days of creation to establish that God is the sole creator and refute all the theories that claim the universe is timeless or that it came into being through some massive coincidence or accident. Now, this really speaks to our foolish attempts to battery-charge the world, thinking arrogantly that we can sustain the universe. We are each given stewardship to safeguard and do right by the environment we live in. But Genesis teaches that God has given the world 6,000 years. After that comes the seventh day, which is the kingdom also lasting a thousand years. Now, we are almost at the end of that 6,000 years, called the latter days. As the body ages, so does the earth. As the body dies, so will the earth. We must learn to detect its age, to observe the signs and lovingly care for it and its inhabitants until the end. I want to close this section on Genesis with a conversation that God had with Ezra 
about the world and how it ages. It's found in the book of Second Estrus in the Apocrypha. The Lord said to Ezra, I have made the earth the womb for those who are at intervals engendered in it. For just as an infant cannot bear children, or as one who is old cannot any more, so I have organized the world that I have created. Those who were born in the vigor of youth are of one kind, and those who were born in old age, when the womb was failing, are of another. For the creation is already growing old, as it were, and past the strength of youth. Now the time of Ezra, when this was written, was almost five hundred years before Messiah came. The Lord God created the earth we know to last six thousand years and no more. The book of Exodus, interestingly, begins in Hebrew with a conjunction, the word and, because for the reader the book relates to the concluding chapters of Genesis. It was there when Jacob's family begins the process of exile by going down to Egypt. And in Exodus, the story of the exile is developed until it ends with the blaze of miracles that culminated in the Exodus and the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. The book begins with the same verse as Genesis 46, 8, quote, Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, unquote. Now in Genesis, Jacob's grandchildren were listed, whereas Exodus lists only his sons, the second generation, because they were able to resist the corrupt atmosphere of Egypt and maintain the moral and spiritual grandeur of Jacob's family as God intended, whereas his grandchildren were not able to maintain the high standards set by Jacob, so they are not honored by being named here. The book of Exodus is referred to in Hebrew as Shemot, which means names. We're told the names of the twelve children of Israel, the names of the two midwives who saved the children Pharaoh tried to kill, the name of Moses who led the people out of Egypt, and the name of God. In Hebrew, words and names are not arbitrary. Jacob was like the sun. When the sun is out, stars are not visible. But when the sun sets, the stars take over the sky. So after Jacob's death, the presence of the next generation achieved greater importance, and it was their light in the increasing darkness of the exile that kept hope alive. Now there's a great lesson for us to show regard for the men and women whose spiritual light made America the great country it has been. Many of them have already passed. And as the world gets darker, it is incumbent upon us who remain to stay true to the integrity of those who came before us and set a godly standard. A perfect example is Chick-fil-A. Truett Cathy, its founder, was known for his love for the Lord and his word. After his death, leadership by the next generation seemed to maintain the spiritual corporate climate. 
But this third-generation leadership has come under great social media attacks lately for embracing and promoting the diversity, equity, and inclusion culture that Truett Cathy would never have embraced. The book we know as Leviticus is referred to in Hebrew as Vayikra, which means called. It is taken from the beginning of the book, and he called to Moses. In Exodus, the tabernacle had been built and became a resting place for the Shekinah, God's presence, and for the sacrificial service. So great and awesome was the glory of God that covered the tabernacle that even Moses was unable to enter. Consequently, God called Moses lovingly to assure him that the tabernacle was built to benefit him and his people and not to exclude them. God called Israel to be a nation of priests and kings, to reflect his nature and teach his ways to the world. Now we are taught in the book of Revelation in 1 Peter that believers will serve the Lord in the kingdom also as priests, ministering to those left on earth. God must have a Levitical people in all generations, and in the kingdom they will be Jews and Gentiles. We see this in the last chapter of Isaiah, where after the seven-year tribulation when Messiah comes to rule as king, he says, I will take from among the Gentiles some to serve me as priests and Levites. Now, this revelation of being separated and called to live close to God became the core of my book, The Levitical Calling. This revelation changed my life and has taken me 17 years to learn what this calling is all about. It is not for everyone. Not every Jew was a Levite. And not every Christian has a Levitical calling. It is a calling by God's invitation, requiring a deeper level of cleansing and refinement that he did not require of the other people. It involves a willingness to live a consecrated life, attending him and whatever is on his heart 24-7. Frankly, most people don't want to do this. But for one who is called in this way, it is an incredible privilege. I'll put a link to my book, The Levitical Calling, in the notes to this episode if you'd like to learn more and see if you are called in this way to prepare others for Messiah's return. The book of Numbers deals with the laws and history of the tabernacle during Israel's years in the wilderness. There is a parallel between the tabernacle and the revelation at Mount Sinai. Just as the people had surrounded the mountain longing for closeness to God, they would camp around the tabernacle as a picture that their very existence was predicated on their closeness to the Torah. Accordingly, Numbers contains the commandments to safeguard the tabernacle for the tribes were all arranged around it, and the priests and Levites lived closest to it, and they were responsible to carry it throughout the wilderness journey. 
In Hebrew, the book is called Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. We refer to it as Numbers because of the tribe-by-tribe census of all the males above the age of 20. Now, the sages note that because of God's love for the Jewish people, he counted them frequently. When they left Egypt, after the sin of the golden calf, to see how many were left after the sinners died, and now when he rested his presence among them. The sages say there are three reasons God wanted them counted. Number one, the miraculous growth of the nation which had come to Egypt as a family of 70 people only 250 years before. God loved them and had the need to count them after every significant loss of life. Number two, each member of the nation had a right to be personally recognized by Moses and Aaron and the census was an opportunity for every Jew who came before them to tell them his name and be counted as an individual of personal worth. And number three, since the people were about to go directly into the promised land, a census was needed to prepare the military campaign and know how many people were eligible to receive portions in the land, their inheritance. I have found the book of Numbers to be filled with great wisdom and application for us today because it was always regarded by our forefathers as a picture of our journey through life to the kingdom, which is our land of promise. Now, much of my teaching in this series has been taught to me through this book. A relevant passage is 1 Corinthians 10, which tells us that, quote, these things happened to them as a warning, but they were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Now, that is our generation. We are the end of the ages, and every story is filled with lessons, which is what makes the Torah so rich. It is God's curriculum for living in the end of days. The final book in the Torah we call Deuteronomy, but the Hebrew name is Devarim, which simply means words. The sages refer to this book as the Mishnah Torah, which is commonly translated as repetition of the law. It is a 14-volume legal code of Jewish belief and practice, which is an explanation of the Torah. All of the commandments were given to Moses at Sinai or at the Tent of Meeting during the first year after the Exodus. This book, Deuteronomy, was written in the final weeks of Moses' life, after Miriam and Aaron had both died. He needed to prepare the people for their new life in the land, because once they crossed the Jordan, they would no longer see God's constant presence and daily miracles. They would plow, plant and harvest, establish courts and a government, create social relationships and means to provide for and protect the needy and the helpless. They would need strong faith and self-discipline to avoid the temptations of their pagan neighbors and false prophets. The sages tell us that in the 200 laws contained in Deuteronomy, more than 70 are new. 
So at the end of his life, Moses reviewed and taught all of the laws of the Torah and the entire history of Israel. But also he records the parts of his teaching that were most relevant to Israel's new life in the land. This in itself has huge application for us because it is here we find tremendous insight in how to navigate this final period of history before we arrive at the kingdom. The sages teach us that the first four books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, were heard directly from the mouth of the Holy One through the throat of Moses but not so with Deuteronomy. Israel heard the words of this book the same way they heard the words of the prophets who came after Moses. The Lord would speak to the prophet, and on a later day the prophet would go and make the vision known to Israel. And so in this book, Moses is the speaker. He chose the words that conveyed the laws as he understood them. The whole book was spoken by Moses in the last five weeks of his life. It was his last will and testament to the people he loved. He was God's prophet, and it was Moses who said in Deuteronomy 18, preparing the people to be without him going forward. He said, quote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Unquote. He was referring to Messiah. In closing, I want to again remind you that Moses had a singular calling to hear God's laws, statutes, ordinances, and precepts and write them down memorialize them, and teach them to God's people. One reason why most Christians are not prepared for the kingdom is that we have dismissed the Torah as irrelevant. Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it in every detail. And he warned against those who dismissed the Torah, saying they would be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. The very last paragraph in the book of Malachi, which closes the New Testament, the prophet gave to sustain us during the 400 years of silence before the coming of Messiah. And this passage says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and judgments that I commanded him at Mount Sinai for all Israel. It is here, in proper study and regard for the Torah, that is our protection in navigating this final leg of the journey to the kingdom. It's going to get even darker spiritually than it is now. Jesus' sacrifice, and whether we accept his sacrifice for us individually, is what enables us to take the journey to the kingdom. Jesus fulfilled his calling. But it was to Moses God entrusted to teach us everything we need to know to make it through the dangerous wilderness we're living in. I hope this overview of the Torah has been helpful. I am indebted to wonderful resource materials from the most devout and respected teachers of the Torah throughout the centuries and I'll put links to those resources in the notes to this episode. 
and you'll find it on my podcast page at candislong.com slash podcast. It's called Torah 101, The Foundation of Our Faith. I want to thank you for joining me today. Moses is our foundation. Jesus is our Messiah. There are resources in my online store that can help connect you more with our Jewish roots. I encourage you to take a look. I hope you join me again next time for Lessons in the Latter Days. God bless.